I'm Megan. I'm Tyler. And this is The Office Hours, the podcast where two literature professors analyze the great American story. Hey, Tyler. Hey, Megan. How are you? Doing pretty good. How are you? I'm I'm great. I You just told me that we have so many uh, listens uh, to our last episode. I, I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, I know. I am too. We really appreciate you guys out there. Thank you for listening. Um, yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, I I mean, I, we would do this even if nobody was listening, um, <laughs> but would feel sad about it, I think. Yeah. But knowing that like people are actually, like people who don't know us are listening to this is so exciting to me. Uh, so <laughs> you, should, you should totally... Um, message us or uh you know if you have questions or you know you want us to add a new segment on the podcast we'll do it you know whatever uh we're here for you um anyway yeah so thanks for listening and um yeah megan do we have any kind of uh things to clean up after last episode reflections tyler i do Uh (laughs) i'm like what did we say i want to um argue against myself in the previous episode. I feel like I was too hasty and too harsh in my evaluation of Angela. I think I was too hard on her. Interesting. Say more. So Angela really bothered me in that time when she is tracking how many times Pam and Jim talk and she sort of overdramatically makes a little check mark on her right. notepad or whatever. But let me propose a different piece of evidence that I feel like I overlooked about Angela. And that is her response to Kevin and Oscar playing that paper football flicking, whatever it is game that they call hate ball because Angela hates it so much. So I feel like one way to look at this is that Angela is just a killjoy and she is no fun and kind of ruins their game. But the other way to look at this, I feel like in some ways it seems like the games and the playing in the office doesn't negatively affect anybody and it's just fun. But I'm wondering if when Oscar and Kevin do it, it just puts more work on her. Oh. Because she does seem super competent and Like she will do the work and she will get it done. And so I was sort of wondering if like the labor of that department, they kind of mess around. And when they do, she's the one who has to kind of clean it up. In which case I should have been angry at Kevin and Oscar. Mm. What do you you think about this? Would you want to play hate ball? Probably not. (laughs) I was also like, oh, wait, am I the Angela? (laughs) (laughs) No, I think, I mean, I think it's a good point because it is like, all right, they're not working. So who has to do that work? I am frequently confused on the show of like whether any work gets done. And if so, what is that work? Um, And I guess that's kind of what last episode was all about, right? That like, Jim can get all of his work done in like two minutes. And then, and as you pointed out, like Pam is then stuck with all of these voicemails and stuff, you know? So there is like a kind of gendered dimension to the, to the, um, you know, dicking around and not getting any. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So that's a really interesting point. Exactly. So my apologies to Angela. 
Mm. Mm. Do you have any any follow-up things you've been thinking about since last episode? Well, I've mainly been thinking about holiday episodes and um and your attitude towards them. And when I was, I had, and when I was prepping for this episode, I had forgotten. I always forget, like, what was the last episode we just watched? Uh-huh. And I saw that our next episode is a Halloween episode. I saw that too. I saw that too. I'm yes. so excited. I'm so excited. You got a lot to look forward to. <laughs> I mean, you, you know this, but listeners may not know that Halloween is like my jam. That's my holiday. And so I'm excited to have Halloween in January, I guess. Uh, but also, um, yeah, I'm kind of excited to circle back to that topic and sort of be like, okay, what what is the relationship between holiday episodes and regular episodes and how does The Office speak to that? So, um, yeah. but that's about all I've got really. Yeah, all right. Well, all of your holiday desire can come to fruition. <laughs> yes. All right, but for now, we are on season two, episode four, The Fire. Should I give us the summary? Yeah, please do. All right. So here's the NBC summary. An unplanned office evacuation leads to downtime and impromptu rounds of NSFW games. I don't know about you, but have you ever heard that abbreviation, NSFW? I've definitely seen it around, um, but not for a while. I had Uh, to look it up not safe for work. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. I remember like the first time I ever saw that being like, um, in emails and stuff, like don't click on this because it's not safe for work or don't go to this website. It's not safe for work. That kind of thing. Um, I don't know if it's still used very much. It was of the, of the time though. I will say the games they get into in this episode, in contrast to the last episode, really do take them to not safe for workplaces. It's weird now that you say that to have two episodes back to pack where like the majority of them are playing games at work. Like it's it's an odd, I don't know whether that was like intentional or just, uh, you know, the, um, an accident of like when the episodes were released or something like that. But, Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, I was kind of curious what your memory of this episode was, because my sense of the plot was very different than what it actually is. Um, So I was kind of curious for you, like, did you remember this episode? Did you have thoughts or associations with it? Oh, good question. I don't know. Well, say more. What do you mean about how your expectation of it was different or like what you kind of had in your head that it would be was different than what it was? In my head and or memory, one or the other, I was convinced that Dwight had like set the fire to (laughs) test everybody and that that was like a key part of the plot. And so when it's revealed that um, it's Ryan's like cheese pita or something like that, that, you know, and he, he gets his new name or whatever, I just was like, wait, what? Like, I don't know where I got the impression that the fire was a fire drill and not an actual yeah. a different fire a different memory might be crashing in with this one. Is there like another episode where that's a plot? It will become relevant. Interesting. Okay. And at that time, at that time, we might have to discuss the relationship between fire-based episodes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we have a special and we have a fire special 
Well, I had yeah. all these questions I was going to ask you about fire drills. Like I was really going to go hard on the fire drill angle. And, uh, and then that wasn't even relevant for this. So I don't know. Going to ask about that. I don't know. It's just going to ask about your memories of fire drills. <laughs> like, cause that was like a significant part. I feel of my school experience was like having fire drills. Um, and looking forward to when that happened so that we didn't have to like be in class for 15 minutes or something like that. <laughs> yeah, you gotta what, go hang outside. Yeah, I mean, it was less fun when it was like bomb threats or active shooter drills. Uh, that mm -hmm. was a bummer. Um, but, uh, but the fire drill, I remember, but also just like, yeah, I felt like in elementary school, especially, it was always like walking in line and who's gonna close the door in case there's a fire. It just seemed as if I was like, are schools constantly being set on fire? Like, it just <laughs> seemed like it was an epidemic of fire-related situations that we needed to be vigilantly ready for. Like, I remember them having us plan a fire escape in case our house lit on fire. And me, yeah. like, being like, could I jump on the tree outside of my window? Like, maybe we shouldn't live on the second floor. Like, I was... a an unsurprisingly anxious and neurotic child. So telling me to plan for my inevitable demise in a fire was like not great for me. Yeah. You know what? I wonder if, yeah, because I feel like fire drills and tornado drills was were big features of early school life. Do you think it's that they've gotten displaced by school shooter drills? Oh, probably. I feel like that has become the more dominant concern but I will say my biggest memory of a fire drill was not actually a drill it was when I was in college and I went I was out studying at the library with a friend who lived on the same floor in the dorm at the opposite side this was a pretty huge dorm like 10 floors so we were out studying at the library and my roommate called and said Pat's room is on fire you have to come back and it was this awkward, like sort of giggling message, probably not information she was well prepared to deliver, but yeah, his roommate had left a candle on and it caught the room on fire. It turned out not to be, you know, a terrible deal. It only kind of hit their room and it ended up being pretty contained. But yeah, we got back and everybody was outside of this dorm kind of hanging around um, and yeah, they were, they were the fire guys of the, of the dorm. So that's my, my fire experience. That's incredible. We, when I lived in Philadelphia, the apartment complex, or it was, I guess it's a complex, but it was a very old, like factory building that had been converted into like apartments. And, um, they would have a fire drill. I, every, like, I think every month, maybe every two months, but either way, it was really traumatic because like the lights, would all go out and then there'd be these flashing blue lights and this incredibly loud thing would be, you know, shouting over the loudspeaker, like to evacuate and with high pitched noises. And so our animals would like freak out. And it got to a point where, cause this was like a monthly situation and it would always be at three in the morning. And so you're going down in your pajamas to Locust street, you know, this like, you know, like busy street in, in um, Philadelphia and standing out there in the snow in the cold and it would take forever uh, distressingly long in fact for the fire department to show up and them to be like okay yes actually as always this is a drill and so oh we, we started to take to just like 
well, let's just like wait and see if it's an actual fire. And like, we'll look out our window and if people look like really upset, which is like, I, you know, I don't know the worst <laughs> idea in the world to be like, oh, let's just wait and see if we'll die. And if it seems like we will, then we'll escape it. I'm sure in time. Um, but it was so traumatizing for our animals that it felt like, oh, we got to stay here with them. And also it's cold anyway. Um, yeah. But in I this case, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Just going to say, is that like the argument against fire drills or like the kind of backlash side of it or like boy who cried wolf effect yeah. where it's like if you do it every month at 3 a.m you're just gonna stay inside which is why i think they have to make those noises so oppressively yeah. loud to force people out that's true that's true it definitely was not pleasant to stay inside yeah but i'm forgetting of course though that this episode there is an actual fire the office could have burned down um yes. and it didn't and but uh, yeah. They also, many people also are expecting that it is a drill. And I think it's so interesting how like the possibility of emergency sort of draws different things out of different characters. So Stanley and Phyllis, for example, I love them when the alarms go off because they're just kind of leaning, they're both at Stanley's desk and Phyllis is kind of leaning over like they're looking at some paper together and working on something and they're just like, oh, we're, you know, Dwight, you do this all the time. We're <laughs> going to continue through. Um, I, I mean, speaking of Angela earlier, I was really interested that she is like the, I don't know, she's similar to Dwight in this moment where she's like yes. ordering people around and saying, you know, what does she say? Like arms at your sides, uh, safety partners, don't panic. Like she's ordering, she's trying to... Um, you know, I don't know, do do the evacuation similar to him, although, you know, maybe not as hysterically as Dwight. <laughs> I have to admit, uh, well, I, I, I really, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a stand for, for Dwight, but I thought that his um, physical comedy in this was hilarious. And I wanted to ask your opinion about physical comedy, because I am a sucker for people like falling down or, you know, <laughs> other kinds of like, I'm just, I'm always going to laugh at physical comedy, but, uh, but I have friends who are like, oh my God, that's like the lowest form of low comedy. And it's so, you know, dumb or whatever. I was kind of curious your take. This is a good question. You know, when Dwight proposes that he, he and Ryan and Michael be called the three musketeers. And yeah. then Michael says, no, the three stooges. I feel like a lot of times we think of physical comedy as being like the three stooges variety where it's kind of like, I don't know, slapping people and they like spin around or the stepping on a banana thing or kind of stupid stuff. But I feel like physical comedy is really, really funny when it is perfectly suited to the character uh when it like conveys character so kind of like you know we talked about todd packer and the way that he sits on his desk yeah in this very specific physical way that i think is hilarious and dwight here i'm also thinking back to basketball when he's like tearing his shirt off and yeah. uh, his moves here i feel like when it um like when it communicates something about the character, I think that I love it. Mm. 
That's really interesting because I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but you're totally right. That's what makes Dwight's performance here very funny to me, you know, is like the, I don't know, the, the, the gusto with which he throws himself onto the floor yeah. or smashes the, um, what do you call it? The like, uh, for the yeah. fire extinguisher. Yeah. I love the way he punches it to break the glass to the fire extinguisher. At first, it's so bold, but then once the glass is shattered, it's like he's trying to delicately, you know, kind of use his fingers to pull it out and he's got to be really careful. And that's funny. And this episode, this goes to one of the things I like a memory of the episode and something that sticks with me when Michael runs down the hall. So we've got all these different kinds of reactions, right? Like Dwight and Angela immediately both pop up and spring into action to coordinate the evacuation. Stanless, Stan, Stanless, Stanley and Phyllis um, just kind of continue working. Oscar's kind of walking out on his cell phone, but Michael runs like hell to get out of there. And it cuts to the um, security camera footage. So there's this like inserted part where it's, I think it's like black and white the security camera as he is running down the hallway and he ends up being the first one out of the building. And I just think that's hilarious. And I realized that I really love running down hallway scenes because I love it here. And in Veep, um, Julia Louis-Dreyfus is the vice president there a couple times when there are these scenes where like she and her staff are running down the hall chasing her. Like she finds out that the president is having a meeting she wasn't a part of and He's running in her high heels down the hall. And I think I just really like running in work context scenes. Oh my God, I love that so much. Running in hallways. I mean, I'm trying to think now too of like other shows that have this. Um, and I'm thinking of like Parks and Rec. I feel like there's some fun oh, yeah. running down the hallway. I feel scene. like that's right. Oh my God, I love, it's such an idiosyncratic uh, thing to love and I love that you <laughs> love that um yeah so Michael my <laughs> Michael is like uh what he's like yes it should be women and children or something doesn't he I can't remember what he says about that um, yeah but I found that very funny yeah, he tries to justify his um you know basically abandoning everybody I love it yeah so Michael says uh, yes, I was the first one out, and yes, I've heard women and children first, but we do not employ children. We are in a sweatshop, shop, thankfully, and uh, women are equal in the workplace by law, so I let them out first. I have a lawsuit on my hands. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Way to make uh, a strong feminist yeah. anti-child labor argument uh, for running out first. It's admirable. Uh, the yeah, other... It's admirable. The other physical comedy thing that sticks out in my mind from this episode as well, and I didn't know it came from this, but I feel like I've seen it either as a meme or a gif or something like that, is when the fire department arrives and Dwight like goes like, yeah, and he has throws his like arm up in the air and uh, there's just his unbridled joy at the fire yes. truck um, uh, was really yeah. funny to me. Unbridled well. enthusiasm about the about the fire truck is delightful. So just keep to follow up for a minute though on the not safe for work games. Um, I was remembering, or I guess I had forgotten, I'm looking back at the script, but it's Jim who says, 
important announcement. This is a perfect opportunity for us to participate in some really intense psychologically revealing conversations. And it's his idea to do Re Desert Island, who would you do? And then Pam comes up with would you rather, which we never even get to in the episode. Um, but yeah. I was kind of curious what you made of Jim's agenda. The, the who would you do game and that's our discussions of the, the term to do. Um, oh, I forgot. Yes. <laughs> but wow, this is a dangerous work game with present company not excluded. And this made me start to wonder, is Jim actually more the same as Michael than he seems? Because... It was so important for Michael to be able to maintain, you know, borderline sexual harassment joking within the office. And is Jim not doing this? This seems like a, a rough game for work. Yeah. So I guess it all depends on like what is his. Well, again, I, I don't know. What does he think he's doing? versus what yeah. is what is he doing you know um, what he's doing yeah i think yeah. that i'm not actually sure even what he thinks he's doing other than like you know um killing time he's bored he clearly likes games i mean in that way he loves the attention i think similar to michael um mm -hmm. in the way that you're describing he's like the ringleader or the class clown or, or something but in the cool way uh at least over these couple of episodes However, this, this episode has like a really strange beginning because it's like not funny, really. And it's basically, oh, Jim has a girlfriend and Pam is jealous. And the, and the thing, it ends with her being like, hey, she could just call you directly. You could just give her your yes. attention. And he registers that cr criticism. And so I was like, is, is he getting back at Pam by you know, doing this, I don't think so. Like, there's nothing in the episode that suggests that in this moment. However, like, she then kisses Roy, like, passionately in front of Jim. Yeah. And he looks, so it does feel like one dynamic of this episode is they're, like, um, poking at each other or something. Yeah, you're right. Because it does set up this kind of invitation to sexual tension in the office that you know, is that not exclusively about them, but kind of about the right. group. But you're right. I thought, I was thinking back also to the the Pam 6.0 thing that we get in Hot Girl at the end of season one when um, Katie shows up at the office for the first time and um, Michael, we, we've talked about how similar they look and Michael's like, oh, it's Pam 6.0. Right. So I felt like back to the Pam 6.0 kind of tension when she calls and I think the interview that she does at the beginning is so great mm. after Katie calls Pam is in the in the, like the conference room getting interviewed and she's talking about how you know Katie sometimes calls Jim and they're going out or something and then she says I'm sorry I feel like I'm talking really loud am I talking really loud <laughs> and I felt like that was just this perfect in the writing and the acting kind of way of capturing the sort of discomfort and 
some level of distress that she's feeling about this without saying it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was some great writing. And I actually thought, um, Pam, I really, we should learn the name of the actors here. I can't Jenna remember. Fisher, but Jenna we're really Fisher. interested in the characters. I thought her acting was very good in this episode and, and interesting. And like her reaction, for example, when they go to comfort Dwight, well, not comfort, check in on him, mock him. I don't know, but yeah, um, yeah. was really interesting to me. And I was like, oh, wow, she's, she's playing this episode well, but um, yeah. I, well, okay. So the, who would you do? I mean, also like I, that's never, I've never even heard of that as a game. I've heard of like, um, what is it? Mary fuck kill or, or yeah. variations of that. Yeah. But I've never heard of just like, who would you, who would you <laughs> exactly. do? Just who would you do with like no parameters on it whatsoever? And it's and just coworkers? Right. It's just coworkers. Cause like kind of the beauty of fuck, Mary kill is it's a multiple choice and it's about like having to sort out, yes. Yes. you know, yeah. where would you put these three different people? Are um, we going to have to play that at some point on the episode or on the, um, or maybe we'll have like a special episode <laughs> devoted to fuck special Mary. episode. Yeah. <laughs> special <laughs> episode with a serious content. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, Okay, but the first game they play is the uh, Desert Island, right? And so it's Desert Island books um, yeah. for Angela and then Desert Island movies for Meredith. And um, yeah. and which is I mean, so funny because Jim kind of says like, oh, I guess people don't read that much. Like the Desert Island of books kind of failed. <laughs> Can we talk about Angela's response to the Desert Island books? I Please. think it's so good. Okay. Oh, so the question of the what three books she would take to a desert island, the Bible, she says, first of all, and then they kind of tell her, right, like, that's just one book, pick another. And so she picks the pur a purpose-driven life. And then <laughs> she refuses. Like, when she's asked to pick the third one, I think she just says, <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> what do you think about Angela's book choices? And then we'll get to the third book that she ultimately settles on. I know people like this uh, or have known people like this um, who are very religious and would, you know, would take any chance to demonstrate their religiosity. And also, uh -huh. yeah, like, of, why wouldn't you pick the Bible or whatever? And um, so I just had a shiver of recognition <laughs> <laughs> when Angela said that. Um, and I believe I was given a purpose-driven life multiple times, like as a gift, I was given that book many times. Um, and I've never read it. I know very little about it, but I just remember it being like a thing, um, among, you know, yeah. religious people, um, yeah. or Christians, I should say. I was, so I was given that to never read it and eventually just gave it away. I think sort of recently <laughs> to connect to our conversation about Ryan and, <laughs> giving things away so yes like, not ever not ever gonna get to this um I think that idea too that like it's just the bible and just you know a kind of I don't even know what is it sort of like a, a religious inspiration like self-help kind of self help kind of book and then just a refusal of any other books and the way that books then are themselves like not positive resources they're just 
in and of themselves kind of evil, but then especially once she hears about the Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code, code. yes. Yes, I would take the Da Vinci Code so I could burn the Da Vinci Code. (laughs) Just beautiful. Uh, Yeah, I thought that was amazing. I mean, but your point is very, you know, I don't want to like go hardcore into my uh, frustrations with religion, (laughs) especially like, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to lose any of the listeners we have, you know, so far, but uh but what you just said about kind of that attitude of like all books or any other books than these two being suspect and sinful is like definitely a perspective that I'm deeply familiar with and so yeah it's like hard for me when I see Angela up at least up until this point in the show I'm just like I know who you are and I really want to stay away from you like she the person playing that role is so good because it's so convincing and I cannot imagine her being any other way like I don't know that I've ever seen her in any other show and I don't want to like it's she's just perfect um, as this uh like up uptight morally you know crusading Christian cat lady she is Angela Kinsey she's so so good and again I think the book's kind of like their reaction to the fire like how do you respond to an emergency their book choices are all so revealing about who they are and their um oh yeah so Dwight like do I wanted to talk about Dwight's book choice um he says to oh he would bring a physician's desk reference right Exactly. Because first he says, I would bring an axe, no books. And Jim says, uh, it has to be a book, Dwight. So Dwight says, fine. Physician's desk reference, hollowed out, inside, waterproof matches, iodine tablets, beet seeds, protein bars, NASA bit blanket, and in case I get bored, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. No, (laughs) Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. <laughs> so technically two books. Nobody can get to the third book. <laughs> I love it that he was sneaking things into a hollowed out book and still ended up managing to get books. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and that they're Harry Potter. So which funny. also I feel like Angela might think are kind of evil. Oh, of course you're right. Yeah. I mean, that was a big thing at the time. Yeah. Was like because um, I don't know. I think Harry Potter was popular you know, it was pretty newish. Yeah. At this point, I don't remember what year this came out, but, um, but yeah, that whole backlash to it being like satanic or whatever. Um, yeah. Before we knew it was transphobic. Um, but uh, what was I going to say just about, oh, beet seeds. I love the beet seeds. That was like <laughs> nice callback to the previous episode in the beet farm. And, uh, and also I was like, that's not a bad idea. Like bring a crop that you can survive on. Yes, it's really not bad. I love how Dwight just seems like this very skillful sort of survivalist, but also someone who just loves a good fantasy and wants to get swept away by Harry Potter. Now, my question, I I was really trying to like close read this deeply, but so we switched to the DVDs, which is funny, DVDs still were a thing then. you wouldn't just be streaming, right? And which does beg the question, like, oh yeah, like how 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 would you play Desert Island now? Would you just assume that the island has like television? Anyway, whatever. Right, but, no, you're, it it really got more complicated. 
Well, on the other hand, I guess you would have to assume that there's a DVD player and electricity, right? Like, this is a good point. Maybe a generator, though. Maybe like a, oh, a gas powered generator. Fair enough. Have those things. Stick them. Stuff them all into the the physician's desk reference. And... <laughs> so Meredith says, "Legends of the Fall," "My Big Fat Creek Wedding," "Legally Blonde," "Bridges of Madison County," and "Ghost." Just the one sexy scene. <laughs> now, like later, like Jim criticizes these as guilty pleasure movies, mm-hmm. and. Um, mocks Pam for also saying well I kind of like Legally Blonde and then of course the twist later mm-hmm. but when we get to Pam's like movies which he kind of approves of it's Fargo, Breakfast Club, Edward Scissorhands, Dazed and Confused and The Princess Bride and I was sort of like okay what exactly is the difference being drawn here because initially I was like okay so Meredith's movies are romances or their movies aimed towards women and so I was like okay Fargo is going to be like hipster indie cinema violent you know but like Breakfast Club is also kind of a romantic comedy of sorts like it's a coming of age story and Princess Bride is certainly you know I, I wouldn't think of as like a boy movie or whatever at all yeah and confused is definitely like a certain hipster um I don't know, like icon of the 90s. Edward Scissorhands though? So I was just like, wait, why? It's not as like she said Pulp Fiction and, or whatever would have been like cool at the time. Like, um, yeah. so I was like, what is the difference? Why does Jim like her? What? what? Uh, yeah, I was wondering if you had thoughts on the difference between their movies. This is a great question. Yeah, Edward Scissorhands is the one that seems most odd to me and most kind of out of place in that list um but I think your point are the Meredith movies more like kind of later night or like mid later 90s movies and more romance more kind of woman targeted and are Pam's more like at least early 90s or 80s movies where they get like a little bit more of an aura after some time has passed. Oh, interesting. Is that something where, you know, like tapes are starting to sort of be cool again? Oh, that could be. That could definitely be. Some bands are now recording on tapes. I feel like I've heard this somewhere. I mean, you wouldn't, yeah, no, that is true, which is incredibly strange to me, but um, yeah, you would have Dazed and Confused as a poster on your college wall, right? But you wouldn't have Legends of the yes. Fall. On the other hand, like, I don't know, would a college age, you know, 20 something woman have Legends of the Fall? Like, that was like a sexy Brad Pitt movie, right? Like, or yeah. is the joke that, yeah, I guess Jim is just saying these are bad movies and you're bad for liking them, which is why he cuts off Legally Blonde, which I would contend is a great movie. But I um, think everyone actually loves Legally Blonde. Right? Yeah, I think that that's actually a universally loved movie. So Jim's the problem. Jim might be the problem here. <laughs> but it, and it definitely still has that uh, feel of, I don't know if it's maybe kind of a high school dynamic or maybe it's just a life in general dynamic, um, but where the things that you like are so important for your identity and for kind of claiming your status. And so are the things that you don't like, you know, like the things that you think are lame 
are also what make you who you are or what are supposed to make you who you are in some way where like, you know, you can kind of like separate off in that way. Like it creates connections with certain people and yeah. makes you sort of distanced from other people. Oh, that's such a great point. Did you ever read or watch the movie High Fidelity? No, I feel like I read that book at some point, but um, no, I don't think I've I seen can't. it. I can't. Yeah, John Cusack's in the movie. And um, anyway, there's a line in there uh, that it's something like, do you like, I can't, I'm going to butcher it, but it's something like, do you like someone for what they're like or what they like? Like, do they, do, do you connect with somebody based primarily on the other things that they like. Is that really, you're just shared cultural text basically. And um, in the movie or the book or whatever, like, you know, it's kind of unpacking that like a certain emphasis, like you're saying on kind of like identifying with people like around their, their, um, I don't know, around these iconic texts that define yourself. But that is like, to me, like that movie and the book appealed to me in high school. <laughs> and I do think that that's like a very high school point of view and, uh, or maybe college too, I don't know, but like, um, but it's juvenile in some ways, right? It's also like reminding me that when Facebook first came out and like MySpace as well, there was a lot of this emphasis on like, what are your top five songs, your top five movies? What are your, what are your likes? And yeah. liking these things is really important to the like image of yourself that you're projecting outward. And um, so, yeah, when when Dwight says that his all time favorite movie is The Crow, I didn't quite I was like, what exactly is embarrassing about that? Like, yeah. or what is how is this? Would you say Have you seen The Crow? Yeah, it's like a like goffy comic book revenge movie. Um, it's very I don't know. Um, it feels like a Tim Burton movie, but it's not. Yeah. Uh, so I was just kind of like, yeah, what's the, but I think you're onto something really important here too, about the time frame of it. Like, because Jim says what would be in his top three days and confused would be in his top five. And she says, oh, it's in my top three. So suck it. And so like, yeah. so that's a really like status pick then. Yeah. It seems like liking dazed and confused. Didn't ever see that either. I don't think you're missing too much. Sam <laughs> would say otherwise. Really? It's her top three. Suck it. Oh, fair. I thought you said Dan, not Pam. I was like, oh, oh Pam. Yeah, no, Pam. Pam, Pam. <laughs> um, um, well, yeah, I was thinking, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Knowledge of The Crow. Why do you feel like Dwight picks that movie? I have no like, idea. What's deal about him? Okay, so if, this is like, it's been a long time since I've seen The Crow, but if I remember correctly, like this guy and gets killed and his family too. And then, or maybe his family doesn't get killed. I don't know. He gets killed. He gets killed yeah. too. Cause I looked up just the descriptions of it, but I haven't seen it. I yeah, thought like he and his family get murdered. And yes, he, like come, does he come back to life as like sort of some version of a crow to get revenge? Yeah, that's basically it. And and the movie is just him kind of getting revenge on these people that killed him and his family. And it has this like very 90s 
it's raining all the time. Every scene is underlit. You know, it feels like a, like a, like a nine inch nails music video or something like that. Um, So yeah, I'm not actually sure because like, I feel like Dwight would, maybe he would be into the revenge plot, but he also feels like such a law and order kind of guy that uh, I feel like he would identify more with a movie with like police or something. I don't know. Tyler, I think you're getting at such an interesting thing about Dwight, right? Because he is in some ways so much the uh, the law and order kind of guy. And he wants to take over. Doesn't Angela tell him, you're not the safety officer, I'm the safety officer? Oh, yes. Something like that. Like, he wants to be the safety officer. He's a volunteer sheriff's deputy on the weekends. But then he has this more fantastical kind of streak where he would love to watch The Crow over and over and he would like to read Harry Potter and he clearly knows the whole Harry Potter series well enough sorting out in his head which of the Harry Potters would I pick that's right you're right yeah he has a kind of nerd energy right like a yeah so the fact too that it's like a comic book movie um and this is probably still like Okay, what year is this episode? Do you know offhand? It started in 2005, so it's probably maybe 2006. I mean, we're still, okay, you've had at this point, I don't know, like the X-Men movie, the Spider-Man movie, you know, but like... I love love it that you can give you a year and (laughs) situate it based on these comic comic book history. Yeah. But I'm just like, there definitely was a turning point whenever Marvel stuff got really popular, like after Iron Man or whatever. I don't know what year that would have been, but we were in graduate school at that point um, because I saw it with Josh. Uh, But, and I had no idea what it was. I was like, what is Iron Man? And what is this? And he was like, Oh, Wait till you see. Anyway, but but like comic liking comics and comic book things was definitely not cool until yes. recently. And it and I'm and I'm a little like miffed about it. <laughs> but so maybe that's part of how he's being signified here is like a comic book nerd. I don't know. Yes. Yes. I think that that's right. But also he plays, he, he, this is an episode that is actually very much about Dwight and Dwight's sense of social alienation because Michael has picked the sexy temp as his, uh, I don't know, mentee or something like that. Um, so we got to talk about the Michael Ryan Dwight triangle. We have got to talk about that. And actually, I think that they're, that they are kind of, a parallel sort of love triangle with there's Pam and Jim and Katie and we start off with them and the kind of like you know tense feelings when Katie's calling Jim Katie's coming around the office Pam's having feelings about it and then maybe is I don't know if Ryan is like Dwight (laughs) 6.0 like the kind of parallel but basically you know like there's all of this little kind of tension and it definitely has an erotic dimension to it with Dwight, Michael, and Ryan. Tyler, what what are you thinking about this about this little triangle? Uh I loved it. <laughs> and yeah, okay, so tell us about that. And I want to know why do you think Michael is so into Ryan? I don't know. I guess well okay on the surface I think 
he, this is just the, this is not getting into subtext yet, but on the surface, do you think he sees Ryan as like a, um, like a younger him or he wants to see him as a younger him? Yeah, you're right. I feel like, yeah, he would like to see him as a younger him. And then he's kind of, maybe part of what he finds out in this is that he's less of a younger him than he thought he was. Yes. And he sort of becomes even more enchanting or attractive in some ways. Yeah, that was a really interesting turn. Like, cause we rarely see Michael's insecurity turn towards admiration or um, willingness to grant the like kind of other people's egos. Yeah. Um, I mean, that ends up getting overturned by the end of the episode, but he really does seem kind of humbled at a certain point. Yes. Yes, he does. Did Michael say he didn't go to college? He did. Yeah. Because he said he worked. He says something like, I worked in a fast food restaurant to make money to go to college. And then he says that he lost the money, though, in a pyramid scheme. (laughs) (laughs) He is so perfect, Michael. Um, But yeah, so he lost it in a pyramid scheme. And so, yeah, he didn't go to college. But Ryan is like this college boy going to business school, big books in the back of his car. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He, okay. Let's talk. Can we talk about them in the car? Yeah. A couple, a couple of the interactions. So when um, it starts off the kind of first, first part of this is when Ryan is in Michael's office for his review Mm -hmm. and, um Michael's kind of explaining to the camera that you know Ryan's been here for this much time and he wants to hear what I think and Ryan corrects him no the temp agency wants to know what you think Mm -hmm. but so when they go downstairs so so Ryan already is clearly like not that into it and kind of uncomfortable and Michael starts giving him those rules of business um so he thinks, yeah, he's going to like educate him. So he begins mm-hmm. with rule number one, you need to play to win, but you also have to win to play. <laughs> and I love it when Michael gives that piece of advice because his, he just has this face where he's like show expressing on his face, how insightful this point is and kind of like feeling how impressed he is by it. Um, yeah, so I guess there's this thing. So Michael thinks he's like taking him under his wing. Sorry, I feel like I'm rambling on because there are no. way too many things to say, <laughs> or just way too many points that I feel like I want to talk about and get your your thoughts on. So there's that, but then I'm like getting pulled between all the different different parts of this I want to talk about. There's that, but then there's also the car. So he started right, like he's giving them or he's giving Ryan this, this business advice. Then he discovers that Ryan has these business school books that he's going to business school. And then they're sitting alone with the two of them in the back of Ryan's car. And Michael is sitting in the middle seat. So close to Ryan. Um, Tyler, tell us about this scene and your thoughts. Uh, Is that the scene where he says like, uh doesn't he say like you know maybe we should get some air and he's like no and it's like i'm a little uncomfortable <laughs> like yes 
yeah, Ryan, I'm really uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I just felt for Ryan in that moment. And so much for Ryan. <laughs> Michael is so needy. Um, and he wants, I guess, Ryan's like approval, but he also wants to be his uh, superior and his mentor. You know, I kept, I, I, I honestly kept thinking about this. Uh, this is perverse, maybe, but in the context of teaching, where it's like how often we find ourselves as teachers in the scenario of like teaching people who don't actually want to learn anything from us <laughs> <laughs> and who don't see themselves, like don't see themselves in us or something, okay. you know, when we, when we might want them to or whatever. Yeah. So I actually really felt for Michael in this kind of like, hey, like I have something to offer you, but actually like he doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> but like his, you know, the yearning to like, I don't know, to, to, to teach somebody is also to somehow be like seen by them or, or valued or whatever. Um, so yeah, I don't know. That was the one thought I had. The other was that the kind of I don't know whether you want to call it homoerotic desire or what, but like in this episode, Dwight's desire for Michael and Michael's approval was really interesting to me. And his kind of, doesn't he compare himself to like Batman and Robin? And, mm -hmm. um, and he says like, oh, you haven't, he hasn't evaluated me in years, which yeah it sounds so much like, uh, you know, a, a long-term relationship or whatever. It's like, you haven't looked at me like that, you know, in, in uh, years or whatever. Um, it's like a wife kind of statement. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I, I, you're, I think your analogy to the Pam, Jim, Katie triangle is brilliant. Um, I hadn't really thought about that, but that's definitely like at play here. And, and maybe Roy, is occasionally the Michael and um, Pam is the Dwight <laughs> in a way. Wait, and I've got to say, back to your point about there being some homoerotic element of this, this comes after Michael has joined the who would you do circle. Yes. Because this is after, right? So Michael joins. Um, first of all, they ask, uh, they ask Roy, who would you do? And he says something like, um, who's that, who's that tight ass Christian chick, the blonde? <laughs> and then Angela speaks up and is like, my name is Angela. Um, right. but right. Michael, who has said, <laughs> Michael, who has said, um, oh, I play this game all the time by myself when I'm falling asleep. And then he says, I would definitely have sex with Ryan. Yeah, he doesn't even. It's not a metaphor. It's not subtext. No. So this goes back to our thing about the language, like the word choices within sexual harassment yeah. and, you know, like to do, to bang, to whatever. Um, how do you think it changes it when he goes from saying, because Jim, you know, say like Kevin or, you know, people say I would do whoever. Um, how do you think it changes it when Michael says I would definitely have sex with Ryan? Like wording it in that way. Part of the way, I, so this was a very fascinating moment to me because I was like, all right, at this point, how does the audience not like, autom not only the audience, how does the audience and the show sort of not automatically conclude that Michael is at the very least like bisexual, if not gay, you know, like what is it that 
prevents that thought from happening because because I don't think people walked away from the show after or from this episode being like, oh, we have a gay character or something like that, right? So I felt, and this is just like a hypothesis, but I was like, it's interesting how in this moment, the more explicit he is about his desire, the more easily it is dismissed. Um, so like he said, like it's definitive. I would definitely have sex with Ryan. And yet, and then he adds, cause he's going to own his own business. And so I was like, okay, so this plays. This this, yeah. But it sort of plays into Michael's like, overcompensation and inability to read social cues, right? So similarly with Phyllis, right? He was like, you know, she's not ugly, she's beautiful. And in fact, like, I'm worried about getting a boner. And so he like overcompensates with, by becoming more explicit and, but also like too sexual. And so like, in a way he's being sexual reads as not actually sexual, but as about something else. Uh, That's like the best that I could come up with because like, actually he is saying I would definitely have sex with Ryan. And, um, and it's interesting, right? And it reads very differently from Jim. Like Jim clearly wants to say I'd have sex with Pam. He knows he can't say that. He doesn't want to say any, the other women for whatever reason. Um, and so he goes to Kevin, just like before when Roy put him on the spot, right? He went to, yeah. didn't he go to a guy? Um, and didn't Roy call him gay mom. again? Oh yeah, moms. There was the moms thing. Any kind of mom or something. And um, I, I mean, I really appreciated how Kevin was like happy that Jim picked him. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know, that's as much, what did you think of this? And Oh, I, I think that's such a good reading of it. And especially that, like the connection to his response to Phyllis and the thing of wanting to be able to participate and belong, but kind of not taking the subtleties of it right. And then putting it into these really literal way too far terms. And I think you're right. Like, there, yeah, there's something about it then that makes it like, such an interesting point. Like, why couldn't that be? Like, why do why do viewers just not take that as serious? Yeah. I think that's a good question. Like, what is it that makes that um, kind of unthinkable for him for some reason? But I think it's sort of like, well, first of all, it makes it so much more explicit. Like, to do is just so fuzzy and kind of general and you know it doesn't give you as much of a physical picture in your mind I feel like as when Michael says that and suddenly it's like oh like really awkward it feels like for everybody and Ryan oh my gosh poor Ryan um can you imagine being in that position and your boss saying that to you in front of everybody yeah yeah his sexual harassment of Ryan is like a really interesting theme running yeah. through this season. And I'm, maybe they think it's funny um, just cause, or whether they're playing on a kind of gay panic thing, but again, like, like I have been interested in how the show doesn't really, like it doesn't feel homophobic. 
yeah. in the same way that like so many other things of this era do. I mean, maybe that doesn't mean that it's not homophobic. It just doesn't, it seems to think that it's doing something else, especially by giving us uh, Roy, who's like, that's gay. And we're clearly not meant to like Roy or anything that he says, right? Um, I don't know. Yeah. But like, okay, so Ryan says, I'm uncomfortable in the car. Mm-hmm. And then the very next thing we see of Michael is saying he wants to have sex with Ryan. It's like partly too, like when somebody asserts their boundaries, I don't know, I've totally met people like this where it's like you assert your boundaries with somebody and then that only increases their desire to break the boundary, like whether intentionally or not, or to like comment on it or whatever. They can't just like let it go. Like mm-hmm. they need to like come back to it or whatever. So it's partly that like, but also, um, yeah, like I think Michael's in love. <laughs> yeah. It Also, I'd forgotten that, that this comes after they're in the car, but it's almost like when he says that he's voicing the thing that I feel like was sort of the erotic charge that was already right. there in the car. Like Michael's sitting so close to him and he's just, he's sort of talking to him in that kind of like, I don't know, kind of breathless, like sort of vulnerable voice where he's also like just kind of opening up too much. You know, he tells him I yeah. became a salesman because of people, um, I love making friends, but then I was promoted to manager at a very young age. He's talking like talking, kind of getting all way into his feelings. He's like, he, their faces are so close together. His lip looks like it's getting kind of sweaty. Like it just, and then yeah, Ryan having to get out of the car being like, I'm really uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, it's, And he's so, he's so afraid of Dwight making him look bad in front of Ryan. uh, You know, uh, yeah, no, there's, I mean, it's interesting though, why Ryan, like, because generally Michael's wounded ego is, um, like we've said, he kind of like overcompensates in other ways, Mm -hmm. but like in this, like, this is the closest I feel like we've seen him having like desire, like, besides the the like specific desire like erotic desire like in these other situations he just wants to be liked or thought to be funny or approval or something like that and that's what he initially wants in this scenario is like I'm your smart mentor and you're gonna like me and I think part of the appeal of Ryan is that he doesn't get Ryan's um approval right away right like But also he has a lot of power over Ryan. So this is a really fucked up sexual harassment dynamic (laughs) at the same time, uh, or in a on top of that, like he, like Ryan schools him and basically, and then he's like, wow, you're so smart. Like he becomes enamored. Like he smart. He like (laughs) falls in love with him at that point. I feel like, um, I think, so I love the point you're making too about the, about admiration and ego and I think one of the things right that it's showing us and that your description is showing me too is the way that um that like admiration and sort of desire for friendship and desire are more entangled than we often think that they are and I feel like this is actually kind of important with Michael being a straight character because I feel like part of what it's sort of showing us is that straightness isn't as straight as we think it to be yeah yeah 
especially to like these kind of homosocial relationships like because this is about three men trying to have a conversation or whatever like yeah and like compete for one another's love so let's yeah. bring Dwight in let's start with Dwight yeah oh poor Dwight oh my gosh I feel for him so much in this episode um I don't know if you can hear uh, Munchkin meowing in the background. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm going to try to like. Oh, it'll be a fun, it'll be a fun, fun detail for the listener. Easter egg. I mean, he, he has food and water out there. He's very, he just wants to snuggle. And, Nothing uh, to cry about. <laughs> um, you, know, wait, you were saying you feel really bad for Dwight. So I'm curious where, like, what was the moment when you were like, oh man, poor Dwight. Well. <laughs> When Dwight, a, a couple of places, I guess, when he's kicking the sign because he's like so, <laughs> he like so bad and he's kicking the sign and it's right before he walks away and it first refuses to say what his favorite movie is, but then he says The Crow. And then when he goes and sits in his car and he is yeah. blasting, we suddenly hear it with the music. He's <laughs> blasting R.E.M. Um, oh, what's the name of the song again? Everybody, Everybody hurts. hurts. It is just such a <laughs> dramatic song for him to be listening to at that point. Um, and I don't know, I feel like he just he just keeps trying to connect with Michael. He's even willing to include Ryan in it if it helps him to be close to Michael so they can be the three musketeers. It doesn't have to just be the Lone Ranger and Tonto, because he starts out saying it's the Lone Ranger and Tonto, not the Lone Ranger and Tonto and Bonto. Right. There shouldn't be this third. But then he's willing to grant access to the third if uh, if it gets his love from Michael. There's the thing where they're counting off the numbers, you know, like they need their number for the head count. And so Michael's one and Dwight's coming to say, you know, we got to give a number to Ryan and Ryan says two. And then Dwight says, no. <laughs> and he kind of reaches his hand out. And it just felt like that was such a sincere moment where he kind of revealed too much. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, so much of his deep feeling about it came out there and it just broke my heart. This felt a little bit like the season one Dwight slightly more than the previous was it the previous episode where yeah, Michael buys the condo? Because in that one, I was like, yeah, why does Dwight care about Michael at all? Because Dwight seems, you know, very confident in his truly weird life and life choices. So, um, mm -hmm. so I'm not sure I could specify like what it is that he wants from Michael other than, yeah, like friendship, approval. Um, yeah. And Michael doesn't care because Dwight's so willing to give it, I guess. Um, but for me, Dwight, uh, I'm trying to remember, what was it? It's, um, oh, it's when <laughs> Pam says, uh, okay, so Pam says, I bet Ryan thinks to himself, I wish I was a volunteer sheriff on weekends, Dwight. He doesn't even know that I do that. You should tell him. Oh, yeah, Pam, right. That's going to help things. Just talk it out. I hope the <laughs> war goes on forever and Ryan gets drafted. And then he says, I'm sorry I said that. I didn't. Just part of me meant it. Besides, he'd end up being a hero anyway. <laughs> I, uh, I think that that's so funny. I mean, partly too, because I was like, oh my God, right? Like the war is going on here. I totally forgot that we're in the 
we're in the midst of a war. Like you would have no sense of that mostly from the show. Yeah. Um, oh, you're right. Yeah, you're just his, his fatalism. He'd be a hero anyway. So what difference does it make? <laughs> oh. I love how when he says it too, like, I'm sorry I said that. Rather than completing what seems like it's going to be the statement, I didn't mean it. Just part of me meant it. Yeah. And it just can be like the kind of intensity of um, his feeling and up the intensity of this kind of triangle among them where, yeah, it feels painful enough that he wants him to go to war and never come back. Do you think, I mean, maybe this is like a specific thing to workplaces too about being replaced. Like you, or, and maybe it's not just workplaces, but like there's the hot young thing that yeah. that takes over your spot, you know? And maybe that's partly what's going on for Dwight, right? Is like, I was the cool or the good one or whatever, you know, and now I'm being replaced. And like, that is, I do feel like that's a dynamic in, uh, maybe in all things, but especially yeah. fraught in workplaces. Yeah. Huh. Which makes his triumph over Ryan at the end very interesting. Like basically Ryan's stated desire is not to become a certain kind of guy. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want to be the crossword guy or whatever. He becomes fire guy and Dwight like, you know, makes a song for him. So Ryan ends up getting included you know, but not in the way that he wants and because he doesn't want to be included at all. Yes. Uh, and Dwight gets to be like the older brother or something like that, like kind of teasing him and and Michael joins in like. Yes. And I guess the only reason he does is because he realizes that Ryan didn't program his phone in. Right. Like he didn't take his phone number. So he gets kind of pissed off about that. Right. Yeah, that it is such a win for Dwight. I think <laughs> he just has the most dramatic plot, I think, running through this episode and such a powerful win for him. But again, he's like, uh, he's like Michael's knight in shining armor or something when Michael says, oh, I wish I had my cell phone. And then Dwight runs into the sort of burning office building to get it for him. And so it's like his act of sacrifice. Oh gosh, sorry, that's my dog uh, flapping her ears loudly. Oh. Responding to my to Munchkin meowing in the background. Yes. Like something's going on over there. Um, uh, yeah, lost my lost my train of thought completely. Oh, but the cell the cell phone. Yeah, so it's oh. just he's he seizes this opportunity to be heroic and go in, and you feel. Over the like, Michael's anxiety seems to kind of build as Dwight is in there, and as he knows, like Dwight is doing this thing for me, he realizes he does have a cell phone anyway. So this whole thing was a pointless mission. Mm -hmm. They just have to mention the fact that when his cell phone does go off, it's Mambo number five. I was gonna bring this up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, talk about it. Just <laughs> that it's so funny uh, that it's Mambo number five. Yeah, and that like. <laughs> Um, I mean, it also reminded me too that like, okay, to get a ringtone like that, you would have had to have like paid 99 cents or something oh, and like yeah, downloaded it. Yeah. yeah. Like, cause these are, he basically has like a flip phone, right? Like it's, you yeah. know, uh, 
yeah, anyway, that just made me laugh too to think of him like actively seeking out Mambo number five. Which it's funny to me. I feel like that song still is referenced in jokey ways. Like certain early 2000s pop songs have just, you know, died on the vine, but Mambo number five is still sticking around in our cultural consciousness. But it's like a song that was a joke from the minute it was being played, right? Like, yeah. Michael, then, Michael's just such a tool with his Sebring and his Mambo <laughs> number five. I think Mambo number five is the legally blonde of songs. Oh, it's not considered cool. It's supposed to be sort of jokey, but when that song comes on, I heard that recently and it was like, this is a good song. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah. Look, did I did I own that record? Like, did I own that CD? Did I have the Lou Vega record? I did. Yeah, I really yeah, did. That was his name. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was his name. Probably in the basement somewhere in my like 200 sleeve of CDs that I that are all scratched up from being in my car. It's probably there. Um, we got to delete this from the podcast and nobody can know this. <laughs> we can't confess. Nobody this is not information. What are you referring to? I don't have any awareness of that. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think if there's any other final things to hit on. I Oh, I had one question for you, which is um, what is rule number two? Do you remember off? Don't look at your notes. Okay. Can you tell me what rule number two is of, of business? It's something like adapt, yeah. app, readapt, apt. Yes. <laughs> adapt, react, readapt, act. I love how when he says it, Ryan, he thinks it's going to like take some time for Ryan to process, but he so quickly comes back like act, adapt, whatever, whatever the list is. Um, and he just, he's like, okay, got it, done, moving on. There was, there's definitely a parody too here of like certain kind of business entrepreneur, like um, self-help kind of discourses, right? Like Trump's, you know, doesn't, it wasn't art of the deal, you know, or you can be a business person just like me kind of stuff, you know, and his advice is completely nonsensical. And, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. I, I would not have remembered it. I'm so impressed that you remembered it. Um, it's such, um, yeah, I'm pretty, pretty pleased with myself for remembering that. Um, but yeah, it's such like kind of uh, self, you're right, like self-help book, an article, that kind of thing that, sorry, trying to make my dog stop licking her feet. It's just... Oh, I can't hear that, but I. No one, wants to hear, no one wants to hear a soft licking noise. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be one weird episode for everybody to hear. Um, so, oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, that, that's, I think that's all I have to say about that. Now, do you have a, a Dundee to, um, to give out? But you know what? I have actually one more final thing I just wanted to note. Oh, yes. And that is. Because, okay, so we talked a little bit about Dwight's end. For Dwight, such a victory. And he says that it was some smart, sexy temp who started the fire. I love how he comes back and uses the smart, sexy temp. Um, but I felt like Pam in the end, or no, almost, there was like a moment when Pam kind of had a little bit of victory that I feel like trailed off again once um, 
once Jim drove away with Katie and uh, she kind of, in her jealousy of Jim and Katie, kisses Roy. Mm-hmm. But before that, when Katie picks Legally Blonde as her top movie, and we see like Jim and Pam kind of reacting to that together, I felt like that really reestablished that connection between Pam and Jim. So it was kind of a win for her there. Although I think the balance ultimately went back to Katie. Mm. And they were also both wearing, in a kind of parallel to when we first meet Katie, they were both wearing pink tops, but Pam had like this really basic kind of button down shirt. Mm. And Katie had this cute pink sweater with kind of special embroidery and like a low cut V-neck underneath. So just the kind of like visual parallel between them there with that difference was very interesting to me. It was incredibly strange to me that she picks him up in her car. Pam points out in the cutaway that she has an adorable car. Obviously she's like mocking that or whatever, but um, Katie's like, do you want to drive to Jim? And then Jim drives her car away. And I was like, what the hell? Like, in what scenario would you pick somebody up in your car and then be like hey do you want to drive my car now like (laughs) unless you own that car together maybe you know but like I just found that like profoundly strange and I guess it's like oh men are supposed to drive and whatever you know um so okay there's that but like even given that I was like it just seems so weird like she picked him up in her car for yeah. lunch, and they've only been dating briefly so I don't know I just found that really yeah you're right that's definitely it's definitely odd does Katie have the coolest car of anybody there what was Is her car I didn't really pay VW, attention to like VW of some kind oh cute I mean it's no Sebring Sebring it's <laughs> that car's an investment Megan that is an investment. I love it. The Sebring is an investment. Well, shall we Dundee it up? All right. Who's your Dundee of the week? My Dundee goes indisputably to Dwight. And I want to specifically give Dwight the vulnerability award today because I felt like he really got vulnerable in this episode and it was a beautiful thing to see. Uh, I thought about Dwight. You know, but I was like, it's too obvious for me to keep giving Dwight Dundies. And, Are you uh, critiquing my choice? Are you subtly criticizing? No, 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 no. I was, I'm like so happy that he's been <laughs> represented here, you know. Um, but I, uh, uh, so I'm just like laying out my logic here, you know. Uh, so I thought yeah. about Dwight. I was like, no, I can't go that route. But I hope somebody does. I thought <laughs> about Haiti as a root because I felt proud of her for her kind of unabashed. Yeah. I like legally bond, like good for her, you know, um, but I'm going to go for um, the Dundee for best boundaries uh, to Ryan. (laughs) And I think it's not easy, you know, when you're in that situation in the car to say like, I'm really uncomfortable and I want to leave right now to your boss. Uh, And so, you know, I'm proud of him for that. And then also, you know, it's really humiliating burning something in the in the workspace toaster. Uh, I may or may not have burned some popcorn and set off some fire alarms in my time. You know, so I just feel feel a lot for Ryan in this episode and think he deserves recognition um, before we start to loathe him, I'm sure, later. 
That is great. Okay, I'm really, I'm glad that Ryan got recognized. Now, next week's episode, as we've already previewed, is going to be Halloween. Uh, I could not be more excited. Mm -hmm. We've got a lot to look forward to. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening, as always, and we will see you next week. Yeah, thank you for listening, and thank you to Jen Lightfoot for our music and our logo. Thank you.